Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, the new abnormal. I'm a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it. And I'm producer Jesse Kennan. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. Today we have an amazing episode where we'll be talking to Patrick Radden Keefe, New Yorker staff writer and author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Then we're going to have a great conversation with Anna Gifty, an African-American economist and editor of The Black Agenda. But first, we have one of my favorite podcasters and writers, the host of Sway and Pivot, as well as New York Times writer, Kara Swisher. Welcome, Kara Swisher. Thank you. Back to the new abnormal, one of my favorite guests. I have to tell you, like, I do think you are one of the smartest people we've ever had on this show. Oh, podcast. really? That's a low yeah. bar, though, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure. No, we have doctors. Doctors. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> book learning. You have people who did book learning. I'm That's just right. clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, have, we love those doctors. First, we have to talk to you about the Facebook decision, though. Sure. You, I think, feel like you're the go-to for this. What's your take on this? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different takes. There's some really amazing work that's being done by a lot of writers sort of analyzing it. Tons. You, there's a lot out there uh, that's being done. Casey Newton, Ellen Dueck, and, uh, and Andrew Marins. My take was something I wrote before the decision because I thought they might lift the ban with some caveats. That's what I thought they would do with, a, with either an apology or something else. Or, you know, if you do it again, you're off your turf for good, this and that. But they didn't do that. What they did is something I didn't think they could do or would do, which was throw it back in Facebook's face saying, this is, you're trying to, you know, you handed us a bag of shit and we're going to give it back to you without any comment, essentially. And they did make comments, obviously, about what they think should happen, but they certainly didn't want to be the ones to make this decision, which was Facebook's. And so uh, it, it exhibited a little independence. They still have all these issues around the fact that Facebook bought itself a Supreme Court. Um, I do think they are independent, but I do think they have very little power to do anything, really. But this was this was a nice flex, I thought. <laughs> it didn't, but it didn't do anything. That's right. the thing. It didn't do anything. It just kicked anything. it back, right? The one thing that it did do is it showed you how disingenuous Facebook has been because they revealed it in that Facebook for years has been like, Kara, he's newsworthy. He's newsworthy. This whole thing. Turned out newsworthy was never an element of the decision-making. They just decided not to to get rid of him when he violated the terms. They had no internal... They just were doing it haphazardly and catch-as-catch-can, which is what I always suspected. And this that's what this report showed, I think. I saw an interview with the head of this Yes, uh, there's a lot board. of heads. There's quite yeah. a few. Yeah. I thought he was brilliant at not answering a single question. Ah, I got a little better interview out of Alan Russ Bridger because he's a journalist and you can shame journalists into telling the truth. <laughs> but you saw that TV interview where he just was like, and on one hand, you know. Well, no, I think I think they didn't want to make a decision. I think they were correct. This is not theirs to decide. Facebook should have a system in place to deal with this and stop with this highfalutin stuff. Like, oh, he's a public figure. Well, that didn't enter into your decision making. Oh, he's this. He's not doing this. Well, he broke the your law five times unless you're not enforcing it. And so I think just showing light on how badly the system is in place and how haphazard hazard it is in place and how dangerous it is that they don't really, it's sort of like a chemical company going, oh, we're supposed to have, you know, filters. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Like it lays in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and he keeps trying to fob off. He made this thing. He doesn't want to have responsibility for it. He doesn't want to fix it. And he wants to hand it off to other people and then give us a speech about free speech, which is like, give me a break. This is just someone who, and then, you know, play into the hands of the right wing who were like, this is about the First Amendment. And you're sort of like, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Facebook. It applies to you, senators or congressmen. What I wrote in my column is they're trying to level it up to some ridiculous, big, lofty discussion when it's really about an angry old man who lies persistently and breaks the rules, vomiting up 
all kinds of bile and then actually dangerously doing things that are dangerous. And, you know, you wouldn't question, they didn't question when Alex Jones had to be taken off. They didn't question lots and lots of people. And they just have to run their business like it's a business and and, and take care of the the impact of things they do. It just seems that's the one plus of this committee. Like if you had to choose, is this that Mark Zuckerberg is a coward or that he is evil. No, he's not evil. He's not evil. He's not a coward. He's ill-equipped to do it and he knows it. But then what? Then then you have to really look to Congress, which is like, it's too big. It's too, there's too, it, there's not enough choice in social. If, if there was competition and Facebook didn't dominate everything, you would have, you know, another service that says, you know, we're going to be safe. We're going to kick people up when they misbehave. Why could Jack Dorsey make this decision and not Mark Zuckerberg? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to that, but he did. He did it slowly. He did it way too late. He did it 1,400 days into the Trump administration after. But he did it. Finally. I give him credit, but not that much credit. It, like it took <laughs> it took an attack on the Capitol. I was like, well, okay, we're going to let him do this. We're going to let him do this. We're going to let him do this. Break the law, break the law, break the law. Okay, I don't want to be a handmaiden to sedition. Right. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, anybody would have made that decision. And and even then, Mark Zuckerberg couldn't do it himself and man up and make the decision that needed to be made because he didn't want to be attacked by the right wing, which, of course, went into full scream mode after this thing, which is just a ridiculous, performative, weird dance they do at this point. You know, talking about the First Amendment. They, I'm, I'm like, you haven't read it because it's not what it says. <laughs> but I wonder with this Facebook stuff, like the top, I mean, we saw this a lot yesterday, the top 10 sites on Facebook are often Ben Shapiro and... Yeah, that's Facebook's own technology. They have, they, they've argued with Kevin Roos, who writes a lot about this, about that. It's complicated to, and I would agree with Facebook in this regard, is everyone has their own experience on Facebook. So it's not top 10 is kind of deceptive. That said, right-wing stuff does very well on Facebook. This idea of being censored is is laughable on every single metric that is shown. Um, and, you know, it's but that's just their thing. It's like, you know, it's tra- like trans kids are, you know, overrunning sports teams and ruining the experience for the girls. And then when you ask the governor, name one example, like Stephanie Rule did, doesn't have one. It's, it's right. all based in, in bullshit and lies <laughs> and making things up. So. so Donald Trump now has a live journal he's calling a social network. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not even that. It's like a press release site. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true. Your live journal had more features. Yeah. So a lot of people are concerned, Kara, that we're going to have these two separate worlds and they think that that's what's made our political system so bad if we conservatives have their own social network and everyone else has it. What are you seeing there? Do you have fears of that? I'm not as concerned. I'm concerned when we're all talking to each other. That's my concern. <laughs> I just interviewed Frank Luntz today and he was weeping, you know, at, at these focus groups. Wait, would say that again? He's gotten very emotional about the focus groups, which have gotten insane. <laughs> I mean, he has. He should be, actually. These focus groups are disturbing. Anybody would be disturbed by them. Yeah. Was Kevin McCarthy there? No, no, whatever. Uh, I, I asked him about that. You should listen. Oh, I have. Um, I don't care if he's his roommate. Like, I don't know what's going to, with Tucker Carlson, who cares? No, I no, I don't care. But it's it's the fact that Tucker has gotten obsessed with it. Is well, whatever. What is he giving him extra toilet paper? I don't know. It's ridiculous. It's bizarre. It's, it's, yeah, it's bizarre. It's strange. He's trying to insinuate gay. I think that's what I think that's what he was doing. It's just weird. The whole thing is weird. Um, but Tucker Carlson is, is right, malevolent. Exactly. So there you yeah. have it. So getting back to this, yes, there, there's a danger of, it's called the splinter net, right? And it's it's not just here in this country, but there'll be a Chinese internet, there'll be, you know, that's more authoritarian and more surveillance oriented explicitly as opposed to our implicit uh, surveillance mechanism here right. by the big companies. <laughs> right. That was Mark's idea. I remember having a late night discussion with him about how he could bring people together. And I was like, why do you have to? It doesn't, that's not how this country, like, I just, I think it's one of these things that when, when it happens, when people get to be in a reductive, twitchy digital environment, they don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily help the situation. What helps is in-person encounters. What helps is having people in your family. Just like with this vaccine, a lot of this anti-vax stuff, people don't know what to do. Actually, it turns out if your doctor in certain cases tells you to do it or a a family member, or it works a lot better than, you know, a celebrity, except for Dolly Parton, who we do whatever she says. Yeah, Uh, she's amazing. uh, Everybody likes, we can all agree on Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. Really, That's that's pretty much it. And so I don't know if it's such a bad thing, to have different ones. I mean, what's interesting for Trump is that the reason Twitter works so well for him and and he's never getting back on is because, and it, it, I mean, that's the one that pains him. That's the one that really is 
a problem for him going forward. He's getting not nearly the amount of attention because of that. He can't you can't rant in this sort of twitchy, quick, fast, fast moving way. It's like yelling out into your own people. It doesn't work as well unless the media is there, your detractors, your fans, the bots, Tucker Carlson, like everyone, Sean Hannity's got to like the rage, the bag of rage has to go off for that. Um, so it's like, it, it, you have to have everyone there. So I don't know if it's the, so what? So what if they're talking to each other? So what if liberal, meaning we don't get to understand them? Yeah, that's a problem. But I don't think that's a new fresh problem. It's just made worse by the internet. One of the very annoying things they do on Clubhouse is they constantly talk about how because you're talking, it's less destructive than, say, Twitter. Yeah, I would agree. I think social audio is interesting. I think people do behave a little better when there's presence. There's be- it's even better in person person, although people do look at look at some of these Franklin Zoom things. They're just they're yelling. They never met each other and they're calling each other evil. It's insane. Um, and they see each other. It's not like they're like tweeting at each other. Yeah. The more proximity you have, the less you are liable to be an asshole, I guess. That said, you know, these things can't, you know, the problem with those things is they're recorded a little bit of time, I think, for a little bit of the time they're saved. But um, you could you, you could be subject to multi-level marketing, all kinds of lies and stuff like that. It's very oh, persuasive. Yeah. You know, there's all those issues. I find them great. I do it on Twitter. I don't do Clubhouse because my social graph is over at Twitter and I don't feel like creating another one. It seems like Clubhouse is sort of disappearing. Well, I, it's, what, it's something I predicted a month ago. I was like, after the pandemic and that's a feature and everybody else is going to copy them and people get tired. It's like a little cute thing that you use and then you stop using it. Um, and that's one of their issues. I think they've done a nice job. I think it's just inevitable. Yeah. I mean, I also think their goal of making VCs celebrities was kind of Yeah, they're not of that interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, it's... I mean, I say this as someone who's married to a VC mm-hmm. who I adore. Like, I had a pretty favorable idea of VCs before I went on Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I was like, oh, man. Uh, yeah. You know, I've, thank you. Welcome to my world for the past 30 years. <laughs> I would rather not hang out with them. That's one of the reasons I didn't. I was like, I didn't like the tonality of the constant media bashing. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, move along. Because I don't think about you for one fucking second. So <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know why you're so obsessed with us. And also, they gave themselves millions and millions of followers. Yeah, on Clubhouse. Yeah, sure. I just didn't want to start another social graph. I just didn't need it. The thing I put to them was, what do I need you for? Like, and I guess I yeah. don't, but, and I get why some people would. Um, and there's some really, there were, there, it's an interesting phenomenon. I, I, I do not dismiss the phenomenon in any way. I'm sure they'll, they'll do just fine, those people. Kara, <laughs> you've done some of my favorite interviews with uh, Jason Freed, who I always found to be really brilliant, mm-hmm. but this base camp thing seems uh, off base. It is. It's a real stain on him. So as a society, we're seeing, you know, Texas and Georgia corporations are getting more politicized. Will there be companies that are able to pull the politics out of their company like Jason wanted to with Basecamp? Or is it inevitable that every company is going to become politicized? Uh, it's very hard. There's a lot of layers. I'm hoping to get Jay. I, I had them, both of them, to do an interview with, and then they bagged out. They ghosted me. They didn't ghost <laughs> me. They were very polite and weepy about it. But they're going to come back on. They promised me to do so. And uh, and if I don't, I'll publish all their <laughs> texts saying they were. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't do that. Well, yes, I will. You've had such a good rapport with him. I do. I like him. I think he's got a lot of great ideas. I think here's yeah, a couple agreed. problems. He put himself out there as a very culturally sensitive person. And the book's were about that. And I agreed with a lot of it. And I think a lot of people look, look at the people who left. I've been here 11 years. I've been here 14 years. I've been here seven years. Like it's, this is, these people stay, it is a small company. It stayed a long time and they've had some very innovative ideas around management. They were way ahead in remote. They were way ahead in lots of areas that, that a lot of people just take for granted now. And then they wrote books and sort of celebrated themselves, which is fine. Whatever. A lot of people do that. Leah Coco wrote a book and wasn't as successful as his book was. And so, by the way, Leah Coco did a lot for cars, but you know, right. whatever. This is what happens in the Donald Trump wrote the art of the deal. Like, let's be That's clear. Right. It's wrote. kind of wrote. Yeah. Well, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it helped him get, get the status that he has, that he had to, in order to run for president. Here's where they messed up. One is there was more to it than just that what he was doing. There was all this stuff behind the scenes going on that they didn't reveal that we had this diversity inclusion thing that just started. They hadn't gotten up speed. They kind of mischaracterized the effort so far and pretended they were screaming on their Slack channel, I guess, and they weren't. 
weren't. They really weren't. They, it was There was some difficulty around this issue around the list of funny sounding names. They didn't disclose that. that. So there's lack of disclosure. And obviously there's tensions just like in society and they never let those go out. And one of the things that Silicon Valley does is they, if, if you've ever been to any of these, they have these meetings where the CEOs come and Google really pioneered it. This company yells at the CEOs about anything, like ask me anything on Reddit, that kind of stuff. So they have this culture in Silicon Valley. They have meme generators where people can comment and then they upload things. And all over these companies, they let their employees talk in a way that no other industry does. So they have a feeling that they can talk. That's one. Two, they act like they're your family. Like, hey, we're all together. You know, they do a lot, a lot of the food, a lot of the culture. We have our volleyball court. You know, it feels right. different. They feel like you belong and you matter and you have an influence because they have to do that because it's hard to hold on to talent. And so they pet them all day long. And then, and they say, we're interested in diversity. Talk about it. But then one, they do nothing about diversity, creating a situation where they at least they let them talk about it, but they actually do nothing. And if you look at the statistics, they do nothing. So then they go, We're, we haven't done anything about diversity, but now you can't even talk about it. Like, are you kidding me? They had this escape valve for people, which most people thought was bullshit. I did among many. They didn't walk the talk and then you couldn't talk. So it's right. sort of like, are you kidding me? You get me, give me nothing and nothing. And then everyone understood guess what? They don't respect you. You're not their family. They just want you to make things for them to become richer. That's right. That's what I think happened. And it was such a cloddish way to do it and such a like, I have all these feels about it. Like, you know, the, the two founders had a lot of feels and it was like, honestly, they're the leaders <laughs> and they either, and it just made you realize they were made uncomfortable by some things that were being said and didn't want to hear it anymore. And I think I want to talk to them about it because maybe that's not what they think, but I think that's what happened. I've talked to a lot of people. And being made uncomfortable, when you welcome being made uncomfortable and then you're made uncomfortable and then you say, shut up, is a prescription for disaster. And that's, when, that's why it had such an outsized influence. And I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley leaders are like, oh, I'm so sick of hearing these people, but I can't tell them that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I want them yes. to shut their trap and go back to their desk and code things. <laughs> I feel like... The thing that we keep getting to is that Congress needs to put some legislation together for technology, well, and they lots can't. Of legisla- there's lots of different but you, legislation. But you know what I'm saying? Like they need to sort of update legislation. Well, they don't have on, any. There's no right. So there's, but it's a lot of issues. Like, look, none of them are together. One's privacy, one's data management, one is a hate speech, one's around, that's which is very difficult because of the First Amendment. One is they're too big. And so there's not an ability for, to be innovation in enough companies to be innovative. So there's all kinds of legislation. I was, I just did an interview with Amy Klobuchar. I mean, she understands this. This is systemic and it's very widespread. So it's not one thing that's going to solve. Breaking up Facebook is not going to solve our problems neither is uh, suing. Some liability issues should be brought up. Maybe they should be a little more liable for their things. Maybe we should give money to the enforcement agencies. You know, that's a big, that's a big thing Amy Klobuchar is pushing for, Senator Klobuchar is, and she's right. It's huge. Literally, there's more PR people for Facebook than there are at the FTC, I think. It's crazy. <laughs> like, come on. Like, and that's just Facebook. Talk about Google. This is the, these are the richest and most powerful people running the richest and most valuable companies in the history of the world. And we're acting as if they're acting as if they're victims. And that's an exhausting thing that I've had to deal with for many years. Oh, God, I'm Because I'm really mean to them. They, I yes, can't tell you, you But they people, love you and they want to come on your show even still. They don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Andreessen called it Stockholm Syndrome. I think he's right. <laughs> Do you think any conservative has ever really understands 230? Yeah, I do. I think Josh Hawley does. Look, if he would stop going down conspiracy highway about, you know, them shutting down conservative voices is simply not true. Um, he has some very interesting ideas about it. I have to, I mean, I hate to comment Josh Hawley on something like this, but he does. He knows, I, I think he does, he's a very smart legal person. Even Senator Grassley, some of the stuff he's working with uh, Senator Klobuchar on is really interesting. Mike Lee, I don't agree with him on everything, but the, he did a very good job in those Apple app hearings. And among Democrats, there's lots. Senator Warner, Senator Klobuchar, uh, Representative Cicilline. There's dozens of people who are really smart on this stuff. And, in, and within the agencies, they just put Lena Khan on the FTC or is about to go on the FTC. They have Tim Wu at the White House now. 
we'll see who they pick for assistant attorney general for what will be the Facebook and Google stuff, the Google stuff actually right now for antitrust. And so, yes, there's plenty of people in place. It's just the will to act and do something and regulate this group of people and this, these group of companies. And that has not been present. And ultimately, getting back to the Facebook board, and we can finish up on it, is that, you know, this Facebook board, stop being, I, at this point, I'm like, what do I care about them? It's not their fault. It's the fault of our Congress who actually has power to act in some way, our our regulators. They do it in Europe. They do it across the world. And these are U.S. companies. And they need to find a way to preserve capitalism and innovation at the same time, say, enough is enough controlling all these markets and and being irresponsible around hate speech or controlling markets and going into businesses to compete with smaller businesses so that you control the entire landscape. And that's a problem. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, Kara Swisher. No problem. Hey, folks, if you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media, like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or... I prefer... Don't you... That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Patrick Radden Keefe is a New Yorker staff writer and author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the new abnormal. It's great to be with you. Well, we're very excited to have you. Talk to me about how you decided to write this book. It started with an article in the New Yorker that I published in 2017 
that came about in kind of a weird way, but I had realized that the Sackler family, this big philanthropic dynasty, had made most of its money from opioids, from OxyContin, this drug that had helped kick off the opioid crisis. We should mention the book is called Empire of Pain. Important. (laughs) If I'm going to plug your book, I should at least (laughs) say the fucking title. Anyway, Uh, continue. And so I didn't, I mean, I was not the the first person to break that news. I think the thing that was strange to me was that it it kind of hadn't caught up with them. You know, the family was still very much sort of perceived as a paragons of philanthropic giving and um, kind of revered in elite circles in New York and London. So I wrote this piece and that somewhat changed the conversation, I think, but I didn't at the time think there was a book. It was only later in early 2019, I thought there was a book. And, and, and the reason was basically that I, if I was going to tell the story, I wanted to tell it as a real kind of vivid family saga where you felt like you had some intimate access to these people, even though they, they weren't talking to me and in, in fact were threatening to sue me. So it was this question of, can I get close enough to them that you'll feel like you're, you're really there with them and having a kind of voyeuristic sense of their lives. And so that was only really possible when a bunch of internal documents came out through litigation. And then also there were all these people who found me. Like This happens sometimes when I write a piece in the magazine is that it's like putting a bat signal in the sky. And so these people seek me out and say, oh, I've known them for years. Let me, let me tell you what I know. Yeah, I've known them. So when I read it, I was struck by that too. So people started coming to you and telling you stuff. And then you were like, I've got a book here. Well, so what happened was that after the piece came out, all these people sought me out. And of course, my first reaction was like, where were you when I was writing it? You know, like, why could I not <laughs> right. find you before? Um, <laughs> right. These amazing sources who came to me when it was too late. And, um, and I just kind of, you know, I kind of hip pocketed that stuff for a while just because I sort of thought, oh, maybe I'll do something else. Who knows? And I would... I would get back to people, but I wasn't really planning anything. And then, you know, I had, the whole time I'd been sort of wondering, like, what would the Sacklers say? How did they see this? I I tried to get them to talk with me. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even give a statement. I thought they would give a statement for the New Yorker piece, which was like, there is an opioid crisis and it is very sad, but it's not our fault. And like, they didn't even do that. They were just like, you know, screw you. We got nothing to say. Um, And... Then what happened was that Maura Healy, the attorney general in Massachusetts, sued not just like I think pre- almost pretty much every state in the in the union is suing the company over its role in the opioid crisis. But she was the first person to sue individual family members. And she had this incredible legal complaint, which was it's like 250 pages long, full of all these internal communications. And I read that I was just so shocked. It was answering a lot of questions I had had. And I actually, I live tweeted it while I was reading it. And I was just in this like state of high dudgeon. I was so appalled by what I was reading. And I think pretty much by the time I finished that, I thought, you know, I thought, A, there's a, there's material here that could be the basis for a book. And B, there's a kind of imperative to do it because this is an important and and really um, outrageous story. So who did you think was the villain in the family? Just because I want to, you know, I always beat around the bush. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think at some point in the book, I say that there's, I think there's kind of concentric circles of culpability. Right. And to me, the, like the red hot bullseye is Richard Sackler, who's a second generation Sackler who was running the company for a time. He's very intimately involved in the launch of Oxycontin. And he's a doctor. He's a doctor. Yes. So he knows what he's doing. I met him. Before. Did you? So tell yes. me. If what's, so you have to tell me your your Sackler connection here. I just knew them from New York and have many concentric circles, which involve children and New York world. Mm-hmm. But uh, I did meet Richard. I was struck by him. Presumably not by his personal charm. I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but there was something where I was like, "This is there's something something here that's not." not right. Yeah, he's a strange guy and I think a very compelling... And look, I've never met him. I've never talked to him. And a genius. I've met a lot of very smart people in my life and I thought something really off here. This person is really smart. Yeah, I think he's very, very smart and I think um, there's a kind of family trait. One of the big creative decisions in doing the book was to really devote the first third of it to the life of Arthur Sackler who dies before OxyContin is first introduced. And, you know, to your question of like, who do you blame... Arthur's 
heirs all say, like, you shouldn't even mention him in the same breath as OxyContin because he died beforehand and his heirs haven't benefited financially from it, all of which is true. However, in Arthur's life, I think that, I think Arthur sort of created the world in which OxyContin could do what it did. Yes. I also think Arthur was the person who, who figured out you could advertise drugs. Yes. And how to do it and how to co-opt the FDA and how to sort of snow physicians and influence physicians through medical advertising and marketing. Yes, totally. But Arthur also shared with Richard this trait that I think of as the kind of signature family trait, which is, it's funny, I think a lot of people see this story and they think of it just chiefly as a story of greed. And there's a lot of greed. But to me, the more interesting quality is a kind of stubbornness, a sort of stubborn refusal to ever acknowledge that you might have hugely fucked up. (laughs) I think that may be a wealthy family thing. But yes, I agree. I think you're right. And I mean, this is it's it's funny because I think like the I don't I don't know that I mentioned Trump at all in the book. But one thing I did think about again and again is this is particularly true of the Sacklers now is that it's a real hazard. I think when you're a billionaire that you're you're surrounded by all these people whose livelihood depends on like laughing the hardest at your bad joke. There is a kind of strange sense in which I think over time that can like make you delusional. Yes, I think that's right. I think one of the things people always think about when they see this is like, did you get any sense of why they thought they could get away with this? Was it just that power was so seeded for so long throughout the nineties and early two thousands and then that changed? Like, do you have any read on that? I think some of it, initially is hubris. I think there was a kind of, literally they had this drug, which is an opioid. People have known for thousands of years that opioids are potentially quite addictive. And for that reason, doctors, you know, were fairly careful about prescribing them and used them as a as kind of an extreme solution for severe pain. The Sacklers and Purdue do this, this kind of amazing two-step where they're like, so first of all, let's market this drug not just for extreme, you know, cancer pain and, and really severe chronic pain. Let's market it for moderate pain too. Why not? You know, they, they, their tagline was they said it's the one to start with and the one to stay with, which if you want to sell a lot of drugs, is like a really great strategy. And then they say, and it's not addictive. You know, we've, we've kind of cracked it. Like it's not addictive. And the, their sales reps would say again and again and again to doctors, it's addictive less than 1% of the time less than 1% of the time. And that was just a hypothesis. Like that was totally just wishful thinking. There was no scientific basis for saying that. So I think in the first instance, it's just hubris. They were like, wouldn't it be great if this worked out? Then it doesn't work out. And I think there's a kind of a phase of denial, which frankly is is still sort of going on to this day where they don't want to acknowledge it. And so they sort of blame it on, they say, oh, the drug's not the problem. It's people who are abusing it. It's these like immoral junkies. And then I think the third piece of it is that our system is designed to insulate people like that from the downstream consequences of their own bad decisions. And mm. and that's like everything. That's, really that's, well the, that's the FDA. That's the Department of Justice. That's all their high-end lawyers. That's all their spin doctors. I mean, look, there's no question. I agree with everything you're saying here. And it's a great crime, right? But my question to you is because they kept the pharmaceutical company private and it was the only private pharmaceutical company how much were they able to be held responsible in a way that other pharmaceutical companies were not well i mean it's complicated the fact of it being a privately held company is i think really really key and a privately held family owned company right. because the the company ends up like, i mean the I know, they really fucked them there's a there's a line in the there's a line in the book where i talk about how like because you know i interviewed 200 people for this book many yeah. many many of whom worked at purdue pharma over right, the years sure. and they and i said that like multiple people independently compared the experience of working at Purdue to living in the show Succession. Like people from like different periods of the company who did not know each other would say independently, like, I don't know if you've watched Succession. It was a little bit like that. So you have this kind of strange sense in which the family, it kind of imprints itself on the company and, and the family members would intervene. Like the Sacklers today say like, oh, we were just board members. We just voted on stuff. We really didn't have much to do with it at all. 
all. Like I have the receipts on that, right? Like just years and years of emails, like multiple CEOs writing these pleading emails to the Sacklers being like, please, I'm trying to be the CEO of your company. Like, can you stop intervening and making yeah. it impossible for me to do my job? <laughs> and <laughs> and they, they don't really have any response to that. So, but at the same time, you know, I think there's this thing that happens where in 2007, the company pleads guilty the first time to federal criminal charges. And if it was a public company... I think you would have seen like all kinds of heads roll. I think there would have been a real house cleaning after a federal felony. But the shareholders would have demanded it. Absolutely. And instead what happens is that like they totally circled the wagons. There were three executives who pled guilty to misdemeanors basically to protect the family. And like literally the family, they pay millions of dollars to these guys who took the fall. They put a portrait of one of those guys in the law library at the company. <laughs> so it's one of these things where like, and, and, and like, and, and there's a kind of, there's a big agreed statement of facts, which gets hashed out with the Department of Justice. Richard Sackler subsequently says in a deposition, he's asked about the agreed statement of facts, which is kind of the roadmap to like what the company did wrong. And they're like, is there anything that was shocking to you in that? And he's like, oh no, I never read it. Um, so like, they're just, it's But of course he read it. Well, he, so he said under oath, he was like, yeah, never read it. So basically you get, you know, what I think in a public company would have been a huge fork in the road, right? Where they're like, okay, we really need to change for Purdue and the Sacklers. It's just a speed bump. So talk to me about what happens next. I mean, it's interesting. You know, when I started writing my piece in 2017, Purdue said there was this guilty plea, you know, 10 years ago. And after that, we really got religion. It was a few bad apples, but we really got religion. And, you know, we, we completely started, we had a corporate integrity agreement and we had a like really robust compliance department. We totally cleaned up our act. And part of the story I tell in the book is that like, that's not true at all. You know, there's a quote in the book that somebody witnessed the CFO of the company. So the company was fined $600 million in 2007, which you know, at the time it was making billions of dollars a year. And the CFO of the company said of the $600 million fine, like, that's nothing to us. Like, we've had that in the bank. So they expand their sales force. They double down. They keep doing a bunch of the same stuff. We know this now because they just pled guilty again to new criminal charges last November. I thought that they had taken apart their sales force. So that does happen after, after my New Yorker piece comes out. So that happened in 2018. They they basically start saying, okay, we're not gonna <clears throat> we're not gonna market these drugs anymore, and eventually they do away with their sales force. But that's it. That doesn't happen until 2018. Right. Okay, and I should wow. say that there's like at that point they have like they you know I interviewed one former sales rep who's like, come on, man, like that drug's already selling itself. <laughs> like you know at a certain point, like by like by 2018 when they've been marketing the drug for for 22 years or or longer, right? You know since 1996. There's already a robust market of people who are going to, you know, it's the one to start to start with and to stay with, right? Jesus. What do you think is the lesson here? To me, this is, in a narrow sense, I think it's a story about the, and you see it with Arthur Sackler starting in the 1950s, like the mingling of medicine and commerce, I think, has been very dangerous in this country. And long prior to half a million people dying in the opioid crisis, I think there were indications of this. You go back to Valium, right, which Arthur Sackler marketed, there's indications of this. And and I think, you know, just on a personal level, right, it's like you see your doctor and you want to kind of put yourself in their hands and trust them. And part of what was astonishing for me is looking at the you know, the, the history of the pharmaceutical business, kind of getting, like getting between you and the doctor and that relationship. It's really sleazy because, you know, I'm 23 years sober. I got sober when I was a teenager. Every time I go to a doctor, I'm like, you know, I'm sober. And they're like, oh yeah, we know. How about this? And I'm like, <laughs> and even like my, one of my beloved doctors, when I was pregnant, she's like, you just go home and have a glass of wine. And I was like, no, yeah. I was like, yeah. come on, man. Yeah. So I do feel like you can't, you have to advocate for yourself with your doctor and that they don't always, as much as they love you, they don't always necessarily have your back. Well, and they don't always know. I mean, I've had these conversations with doctor friends where I talk about Purdue and they're like, oh yeah, these companies, you know, they, they really do everything. They, they pull out all the stops to try and influence us. But of course, I would never be influenced by any of those blandishments. And like, there's a statistic in the book where I found out that, you know, for a period of time there with OxyContin, Purdue, Purdue had a budget of $9 million a year just to buy food for doctors. 
And it's like, they're not now like, like they're not spending that money if they're not pretty convinced they're getting a good return on their investment, you know? So I think there is, and, and, and then the, the larger lesson for me would be just that I just think it's about the way in which our institutions are co-opted by big money in ways that can lead to systemic failure. I think ultimately the story of the opioid crisis is a story of systemic failure. The fact that we haven't been able to see real accountability is systemic failure. But again and again and again, when you look at the specifics of it, what it's about is, you know, I mean, to take somebody I pick on in the book a little bit, it's like Mary Jo White, the former U.S. attorney in Manhattan, you know, who ran the SEC for Obama and is a partner at Devil Voice and Plimpton, this revered lawyer. She has been like a bag woman for the Sacklers and Purdue you know, going back to that first guilty plea in 2007, and she's still working for them today. And what about Chris Dodd? I haven't dug into Chris Dodd at any length specifically, but I do think that Congress obviously has been co-opted in, in ways large and small as well. What are you thinking of specifically? In the movie, there's some really interesting stuff about Chris Dodd getting a donation. And, you know, I mean, and I mean, but that's true with a lot of people. It's true with a lot of people. I mean, there's a line in my book where Richard Sackler says, you know, we can get any senator or or member of Congress on the phone in 24 hours if we want to. That, I think, was very much the attitude of of the company. And and you got to remember, I mean, the, the pharma industry and opioid makers specifically, you know, they spend more on lobbying than than the gun industry does. Oh, I'm so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I, I do think it's an interesting story. It has the virtue of some, you know, being interesting as a, as a story. Hopefully not a total uh, unrelenting slog. What do you think happens to Purdue now? They declared bankruptcy. Well, they did, but I mean, so here's the thing about Again, declaring bankruptcy right. is, that, is, that they, is that the company, so we now know that over the last you know decade or so, the Sackler family is quietly pulling money out of Purdue. They took more than $10 billion out of the company. And as this is happening, there's more and more and more lawsuits against the company. And then eventually, when like when the coffers are almost empty, the Sacklers say, like, oh, too bad. Company doesn't have any money anymore. Like, sorry about all those lawsuits. We're kicking it into bankruptcy. Yeah. And so now you have this crazy spectacle where there's this bankruptcy court in White Plains, Purdue Pharma is in bankruptcy there, and the Sacklers are sitting on the sidelines having pulled $10 billion out of the company before it went bankrupt. And their money is safe. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, and some a lot of the family has moved to Europe. So there is a big branch in Europe, and a lot of the money is outside the United States. So even in a situation in which um, you had creditors trying to collect, it might be difficult for them to do so. Yeah, forget it. I mean, who even knows where everything is? And then they own the Amon, too, right? Yeah, this is this is right. I tell this story about this resort in the Turks and Caicos. Yeah, yeah, where uh, Mortimer Sackler Jr. was an investor, and you know, I mean, to give you a kind of vivid illustration of the way in which these people live, you know, there's a crazy story that I learned, which is that it's this super elite resort, and from time to time, there are refugees who leave Haiti on little boats and try and get to Turks and Caicos, and the boats capsize. And the bodies wash ashore. And at the resort, they had this big thing, which was they were like, we cannot have our guests seeing any of these like unsightly dead bodies. And so they would have somebody who would like, sit up at night scanning the water because if a dead body washes ashore, the real priority was like, we need to get this dead person off the beach before any of our, any of our plutocrat guests should wake up and, and look out. This is the most dystopian thing you... I've ever heard in my entire life. I thought you were going to tell me they take the refugees in and they let them stay in the Amman. Yeah, yeah. And no, no, no. no. That's, that's not where I was going. I, I was like, I had a scenario. I was hoping for like a happy ending or it's like, yes, well, you know, but... But no, holy shit, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a metaphor in there somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really, I'm going to go take some antidepressants. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. That was amazing. That was a pleasure. Thank you. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. 
Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Anna Gifty is an African-American economist and editor of The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System. How do you get involved in economics? Yeah, you know, it's a question I get a lot. And I think it was kind of an organic, sort of accidental kind of thing. (laughs) So a lot of you don't know this, but I started off in biology and it was mainly because my parents are African immigrants. And if you are um, a child of immigrants, you know that you only have a couple career choices because, you know, that's just what it it is. So um, out of the limited choices of engineer, lawyer, and doctor, I I decided to opt for doctor (laughs) because I wanted to, you know, impact people back in Ghana, but also, you know, be a be able to sort of center young people. And I felt like as a pediatrician, I could definitely do that. But I I really hated it. (laughs) I hated the classes. It wasn't my cup of tea at all. And I sort of accidentally fell into learning more about research in college. And that led me to work at a public health lab, which then led me to ask questions about, you know, data where it was sort of like, okay, we're collecting this data from the field, but what are the broader implications of this? And, you know, sitting in a lab where they're looking at blood cells, that's not the kind of questions that they're asking. And so that's when I realized that I think I need to sort of shift my toolkit so I can ask broader questions. But I would also say that, like, even before I got to college, I had a lot of exposure to sort of the econ politics space through very organic mediums. So my dad and my brother would often talk to me about politics. Uh, My brother is substantially older than me. So he'd be watching The Daily Show. I'd be in middle school. He'd be watching The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And I'd be like, I want to watch PBS Kids. And he's like, well, I'm watching TV. (laughs) So you either join me or you leave. So I said, okay, fine, I'll join you. And kind of looking at this very frustrated white guy on television, but he was speaking a lot of sense. I was like, yo, like this guy's making several points. I wonder why people aren't listening to him, (laughs) but not knowing that obviously the daily show was a lot bigger um, than I thought. And so that combined with kind of my obsession with Ted talks, you know, when I got to college and got into math and eventually economics, I realized that everything that I had done sort of prior to college had sort of set me up in a way to really take this space on, right? So for example, the TED Talks that I was watching, turns out I was watching economists. So Ngozi Nkonjo-Iwele was one of those economists that I was following her talks. Like every time she posted something, I was listening to folks like Paul Collier, Dembisa Moyo. So, you know, there are people who I liked the way that they were thinking about the questions around the world, but I didn't know what they were. I was like, what's an economist? Is that like a lawyer or something? Like, what what do they do? Um, and then obviously when I got into the field, I was like, oh, okay. It makes a lot of sense that I'm here now. Yeah. <laughs> and so talk to me about your general thesis. Ooh. Because I feel like you have an important thesis. Well, Yeah, I think, you know, if we're thinking about a thesis as a way to summarize the essence of my purpose, I feel like I've been brought to this world to center Black people, specifically Black women and young Black people, and do that through every possible medium. And so obviously, like, if you follow me on Twitter, it's Afronomics. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? It's Afronomics. Oh, it was actually like a really fun play on words. So I I like Black people. I am Black, (laughs) right? And I like to amplify Black people. And oftentimes what I'll be amplifying them about is around economics, politics. And so I decide to combine those things. I wanted to go with Afronomics, but somebody had already taken it. So I just went with it's Afronomics. Can you explain your idea of economics more focused on Black women and the sort of idea behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually not my idea. That's Janelle Jones's idea. So Janelle Jones is the chief economist of the Department of Labor currently. And the Department of Labor basically handles all the jobs and job recovery in our country. And it's pretty significant because she's the first Black woman to assume that position. And so she has this um, term, I would say more so framework called Black Women Best. And so Black Women Best says, if we center economic policies on Black women, then everybody inevitably benefits. And the way to think about that is Black women are 
worse off than essentially every other group on several economic dimensions. So to kind of give you some, you know, numbers at one point during the pandemic, black women's unemployment was, you know, around 16%, right? As compared to other groups, um, if we're thinking about 2008 financial crisis, Black women actually lost more jobs during the economic recovery period than any other group. In fact, all other groups basically gained jobs <laughs> as a result. So this idea of centering the economy on those who are most vulnerable so that those who are less vulnerable than those folks benefit as a result. Right, exactly. And can you give me some of the ways in which this works like that you that the economy can do this yeah so you know let's talk about an idea that has been circulating around the twitterverse but also in policy discussions right this idea of canceling student debt right a lot of people are like okay we want to cancel the debt we want to forgive the debt but who actually is this going to benefit so, you know, I often say that it's very interesting to me that, you know, the way that America looks at black women as the saviors of democracy, but are not intent on actually saving black women from the anti-democratic policies that are currently in place. And one of those examples are, you know, student debt crisis. So it turns out, you know, black women actually have the highest student debt across all groups, irrespective of race and gender. And so that means that if we actually we're framing the policy discussion around forgiving the debt of black women in mind, then everybody would inevitably benefit because everybody else's student debt is less than black women's student debt. I think another example too, to think about that's a little bit more relevant to today is the stimmies, right? So stimulus checks, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right? This idea of people not getting enough money to survive Right. If you're looking at it through the lens of maybe a white guy who already has a well-off job, then, yeah, maybe he'll take that stimulus check and go invest it in some stocks. Who knows? But then you have to look at it from the perspective of the most vulnerable and those who are essentially the breadwinners of their household. So according to the Center of American Progress, 68 percent of black mothers are the primary breadwinners of their household. And wow. that's pretty significant, that's pretty right? Significant. <laughs> because yeah. it says that, okay, Black women already are disproportionately represented in jobs that are considered essential now, but are still low paying, still no benefits type jobs. And then they're not getting any support from the government during a catastrophic crisis that is going to affect their families for generations. So this idea of you know, targeted STEMIs and even the conversation around how much should we be giving people for, you know, survival or whatever, right? If you're looking at it from the perspective of I'm a, you know, super, you know, well-known economist and, I, you know, I have all of the answers with respect to my research, but you're not looking at it through the lens of actual people, um, you you miss sort of the mark. And, and to the point around the 68%, Black women not getting these stimulus checks is not just about those women not getting stimulus checks. It's about the generations that come out of those women, right? And the communities that are inevitably affected by the fact that these women aren't able to build wealth. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like we had Paul Krugman on here the other day and he was talking about how child payments like will actually do incredible things for children. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that I agree with that take. And I think it will also go even a longer way for Black women and Black families overall. There's also this idea called baby bonds that Derek Hamilton, um, who's an economist, introduced. And I believe Cory Booker actually ran on that platform as well. Whereas this idea that, you know, Everybody who's young is born with a certain amount of money that they can then sort of cash in when they're 18. And that also sort of thinks about the racial wealth gap in a nuanced way, right? The racial wealth gap, just to kind of put it in very layman terms, is basically the gap between blacks and whites with respect to wealth and wealth building. And if we think about, you know, this whole narrative around pull up by your bootstraps, if you work hard enough, you'll make you know, you'll make it and you'll get to where you need to be. Black people can work as hard as they want. They will never get the amount of wealth that white people have in this country unless there's significant policy changes that ensure that that racial wealth gap is closed. And so obviously the child tax credit um, or, you know, sorry, what you were saying, right? I know. Is I, one I way said, to well, do what that. are we supposed to call it? It was like, it's not a credit. It's a, you know. <laughs> 
Right. That's one way. Right. And then I think even the stimulus checks in some sense can help sort of people survive that way. You know, if we're thinking about wealth building, they're not losing wealth on top of all the economic and health crises that are happening. And then if we're thinking also about, you know, small businesses, right. Um, the majority of minority women owned businesses are owned again by black women. And so this idea of centering policies that are aiming to close the wealth gap at the end of the day is, you know, really critical. And that's why, you know, quite frankly, if you are following me on Twitter, once again, like I was incredibly excited to see my mentor, Dr. Lisa D. Cook, be considered potentially as a governor of the Federal Reserve System. And so to give some additional context around what that is, the Federal Reserve essentially takes care of our economy. They make sure that our economy is healthy. Oftentimes the people who sort of regulate interest rates and infuse cash as needed. And so having somebody who specifically understands how the economy and racism are intertwined will be critical. And so having someone like Dr. Lisa D. Cook, perhaps in that position, will also allow her insights to then inform how we think about broad economic policies. Yeah, that's going to be a big deal, I think. Do you have any thoughts about Janet Yellen? Yeah, she's great. <laughs> Janet! <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's a really cool person. And I think She's gone through her own evolution, as I've mentioned before, you know, this idea of understanding that diversity or the lack thereof around the 2008 crisis is really why that crisis began in the first place, right? So, you know, there is a Howard economist called Dr. William Spriggs, who has mentioned in many interviews that essentially had there been more black and brown economists who were listened to around the time when black and brown communities were getting sort of the 2008 crisis before 2008, we might have not had a crisis to begin with. And I believe that Janet Yellen actually agrees with that take, even emphasizing that more women would have even been better to include in the room as well. Um, you know, and so I'm thinking about that more broadly, right? So not just, you know, white women, but, you know, black women, brown women, and so, so forth. And so, you know, I think she's somebody who, who gets it and she's getting it. And, you know, I've said in interviews that just like Janet Yellen, just like Biden, like it's really going to be about who they surround themselves with, who's their cabinet, right? Who's the people that are informing their overall view of how things should move. And I, I, I'm quite excited, to be honest. You know, I listed some folks recently on Twitter that, you know, are Black women who are super progressive and who have these bold ideas that I really think, if adopted, can really change things for the better. I feel like the general consensus from 2008 is that we did not do enough. Mm. People were not bailed out enough, right? Auto companies were bailed out and corporations were bailed out. People themselves were not bailed out enough. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I think to some extent I agree, right? Um, I'm not too, I'm not an expert on the 2008 financial crisis. Quite frankly, I was... I believe in elementary school. Yeah, stop bragging. <laughs> no one likes a bragger. Right. Okay. No, no. no. <laughs> but I think, you know, from what I understand of the situation, absolutely. I'll share a very personal thing with you. So as you guys know, the big short is based off of the 2008 financial crisis. The whole premise is, you know, a couple guys on Wall Street decided to bet against the housing market failing and they won. And, you know, at the very end, I believe is Michael Baum. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly. Maybe it's Matthew Baum. I'm not sure. <laughs> but he's not, he doesn't want to share, sell his shares, right? Because he knows it's going to make a buttload of money, but he also knows it's going to be at the expense of everyone else. And, you know, there's a moment in the movie where, you know, these two young guys are like, oh my God, we're about to be rich. And, you know, Brad Pitt's character, I forgot his name too, <laughs> is like, at what expense though? everybody's going to lose their jobs, right? And so I think a lot more could have been done around ensuring that, you know, at least there was a safety net to catch people who were inevitably going to lose their jobs. I also think the fact that, you know, the whole system, wow, I'm about to be very hot with this. <laughs> the whole system was aware that it was rotten. The whole system, right? And we, we kind of get a sense of that from the movie and also different articles that have come out around it. But this idea of like, everybody knew that this was all kind of BS and they were just kind of playing along and letting the good times roll. 
And so when all of it failed, and then it seems like, you know, the only way to get through it is to then bail out the people who were willingly participating in, I would say, one of the worst economic schemes we've ever seen, right? And that be at the expense of everybody else. I mean, like, there's nothing ethical about that, right? And, you know, one thing I've said when the Wall Street bets thing was happening was, you know, I understand that, you know, the narrative isn't completely the little guys versus the big guys. But, you know, to some extent, it's a little encouraging to see, like, the little guys kind of win, right? This idea of, like, collective people, ordinary people, teenagers, you know, coming together and saying, we're going to stick it to hedge funds um, because, you know, we can. And I think that's, for me, I I think I enjoyed it because... um, I don't know. I've never, I just never seen Wall Street be held accountable, quite frankly. And, you know, I think that's, that's where I think they could have done a lot more. The fact that, you know, even I think shortly after that, and, um, you know, my, my favorite, one of my favorite Congresswomen, Elizabeth Warren went in on Wall Street <laughs> bankers around this, right? Is like, I think Wells Fargo CEO made a bunch of money, like making fake accounts. Like people are still on their staying, same shit, basically. So this idea of like not holding Wall Street accountable, that's where I think people dropped the ball who were empowered that should have, you know, stepped up. Yeah, that is so helpful. This has been so great. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much, Molly. Always a pleasure. Folks, I just want to tell you on this week's bonus episode, we have Curb Your Enthusiasm and the Goldbergs' Jeff Garland. To hear it, you need to become a member of Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. To do that, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Hello, Jesse Cannon. Hi, Molly Jongfast. So... What's on the agenda? Who is the worst person? All right, so I think the worst person in the entire world is Tucker Carlson. You know, Molly, I am sadly watched Tucker Carlson last night for about 20 minutes, and I, like, lost time. I was so horrified. (laughs) Well, I think that Tucker Carlson wants to kill us all. I think he definitely wants to tear America in half, and we have to start looking it in the eye that he's trying to cause a gigantic rift in America. It's not he's running for president. He actually wants to sow a divide. Yeah. I mean, I think he wants ratings. But I think that if sowing a divide comes with that, that's okay, too. Don't you think he has bigger plans than just ratings? I think. No. I think he's just a nihilist. Yeah. I think he's smart and nihilistic. And, you know, if that works for him with ratings and making money and power, then good. And if Mm -hmm. I don't think he really cares. I don't think he, you know, gives a shit about anyone, which is why... Yes, tell me why he earned this today. You know, what's interesting about Tucker Carlson is that when you push back as a culture and say, like, I think it's a bad idea, you're spreading anti-vax rhetoric, (laughs) and it's going to, you know, cause people not to get vaccinated and then die, or there's going to cause, you know, what's going to happen is if people don't get vaccinated, there are going to be variants, and variants are going to travel around and infect people, and then the virus is going to mutate and will eventually mutate to a point where the vaccine doesn't work on it. Now, recently, we got all this really good news, which was that basically the vaccines work on a lot of the variants pretty well, which is a miracle and means we could conceivably have this hot girl summer. But Tucker Carlson's working hard to fuck it up for us. And last night he went full anti-vaxxer. There's this uh, Center for Disease Control's Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And it has for a long time been sort of a clearinghouse of anti-vaxxer bullshit because it's completely self-reported with no oversight. So you go on there if you're Alex Berenson, who is also a total fucking asshole, excuse my French, and you type in that, you know, you had the coronavirus vaccine and then you died, right? And so now, as a dead person, you are putting that in the database. It's a very kind of scammy situation with filled with self-reporting and no oversight. And so Tucker Carlson has decided that this explains all of it and that many more people are dying from the vaccine and that it's underreported. And of course, he's not an anti-vaxxer. He's just asking questions. But the question he wants to ask is, why would anyone in the world get a vaccine? And so for today, I say, go fuck yourself, Tucker Carlson. Right on. Well, mine is, uh, I mean, my I got bad news. <laughs> Trump may be off Twitter, but people with 
even worse brains than Trump are imitating his stupid use of language. And today, that's new aspiring leader of the Republican Party, Elise Stefanik, who unfortunately is now talking like a Trump, walking like a Trump, and trying to be just as craven and serve her own personal interests just like a Trump. Just as craven? How is that possible? (laughs) Well, I I think like many people, she's seen that power may be coming her way, and she's saying, what can I do to be the most horrible person to feed the members of this party that want me to just do all the horrible things and be cruel? And now we have another asshole to add to the pile. Yes. She and Liz Cheney fight, fight, fight. Can they both lose? (laughs) What <laughs> one would hope, but uh, I think unfortunately, uh, America loses. Someone I can't feel sorry for losing is Liz Cheney, and I think she is the loser here. Yeah, well, just don't go hunting with daddy. <laughs> yeah. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.